Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 34. Welcome back, Alex. Glad to have you back on the show. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, it was a that was actually a rough episode to get out the door cuz we we had all of our delays in recording and then I got sick when I was supposed to do the editing and yeah, it got out the door a little bit late. Sorry about that. Sorry about that to all all of our listeners. We try to have it out earlier, usually but usually Thursday or Fridays, but that barely happened. Hey, it got out there, so it's all good. Yeah. So, what's been good this week? I don't know. It's been a busy <laughs> week for me. So I guess that's it. Can be good that that you're really busy. Yeah. But uh, I feel like my weekend is completely gone. Uh, I actually went to an event with you, Sam, uh, for our listeners that. It's, it was called Southwest Ohio Give Camp. We've talked about it a little bit before, but we uh, basically made an app for a charity, and uh, we got to try out some new technologies and build an app from scratch, which is always fun. But there are some interesting takeaways I had just from that short little experience. What about you? Well, yeah, Give Camp, I'm still recovering from that. Going into it sick. So I felt like I didn't contribute as much as I normally do or would have liked to have done. Uh, but then again, our project wasn't bad enough that it, that it suffered from that. So you guys definitely stepped up. Yeah, the trick for, uh, I think, for a, an event like that where you're trying to make an app in a couple days is... Uh, make sure you limit the scope very to very small um there are some other projects that ran into ran afoul of, of that rule but uh we did okay one of the interesting conversations that we started to have uh, and i was like we'll just say this and talk about this on the podcast but we were trying to figure out if we should vendor our our uh, cocoa pods pods folder and all that that goes with it uh so I don't know. I was I was curious what what your guys's thoughts on the right way to do it. We talked about it a little bit previously, but I figure we could go a little bit in depth about it. So what, what's your thoughts, Sam? What 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 do you think you should do? What do you you know before you get too deep into it? Okay. What do you mean by vendor your your pod files? I think that's kind of a Ruby term, but basically like uh, vendoring means if you have some dependencies, you throw them into your repository as well, rather than just like you would do maybe on a Java project or something where you say, these are my dependencies and you rely on uh, Maven or some other tool to pull it in. You just commit it all to the repository. Right, yeah. With that, a... you're assuming the original source is always going to be there and that you can repool those dependencies at any time. Right. That's one of the reasons to vendor, vendor your stuff. Yeah, I, I don't do it on my own stuff, um, and we don't do it at work either. It's it's just been problematic. I mean, CocoaPods doesn't actually 
have any concept of vendoring like what Ruby, like what Ruby gems to do. So, so tell me about that. Is there like built-in support to like, what does that mean that it has support for it? What does it do? Yeah. So I think it's bundler and it's been a while. So I'm going to be rusty on this and people can correct us if we're wrong. All of our Ruby dev listeners. (laughs) Yes. I'm sure there's some crossovers, but they use a package called bundler and bundler has support for actually downloading the gems and then storing them in the project subfolder and similar to the way the way cocoa pods works and i guess you could put that in your source control as well you don't have to uh, and that's really the what the question is is do those dependencies go in your source control and bundler i think will work with it if it's there and CocoaPods will work with it too, but I find that if I, you know, CocoaPods revs so much that if you're out of date, then the pod file lock, the pod file dot lock file is going to be different for you than what's checked in with the source control. And for me, it's like, I just always run into issues with it. I'm not always keeping up to date with CocoaPods or I might have a higher version, and then it complains that, hey, this is built with a lower version. And so, why? Uh, to me, that seems like an argument for why you should vendor your CocoaPods, not why you shouldn't vendor it. Do you not commit your pod file.lock? Well, I think if you're going to vendor, you have to commit that file. Well, it's actually kind of interesting. I was looking on the CocoaPod site, and they said it's up to you whether you you know, commit your pods directory, which has all the goodies that get pulled down and generated by CocoaPods. But uh, they say you should always keep your pod file.lock under version control, which I I did not realize, but... Yeah, I think that's the only way you can really tell exactly which versions of the pods the build was done with. You know, there's no other way okay. of seeing the versions. Right. Yeah, so I guess I'll go over kind of what I was thinking as far as reasons to vendor. And one of them is kind of like you were saying, Sam, is CocoaPods is still evolving. It's not a 1.0 thing. So if you have some project that you do and then sits on the shelf for a while and you vendor your pods folder, next time when you check it out, um, it should just work. Or if you get someone who's new and the project is passed off to them, they can just check out your project and it'll build and run uh just fine without having them having to install CocoaPods or even know what it is really. Um, that's one of the main reasons I I would tend to do it on a short-lived project. Uh, and like Alex was saying, the, otter, the artifacts are always there. Like you don't have to worry about GitHub being down, which I remember being an issue one time when. Uh, oh yeah. When I worked with you. Yeah, I think there was a whole day. Or more, GitHub was getting a nice denial of service attack, and we couldn't get builds out. Yeah, and there then you've been cases where CocoaPods uh, spec repository was uh, screwed up and caused issues as well. Yeah, I think they've they've kind of clamped down on the reasons for that happening lately. Yes, but that's true. They went to this whole crazy thing where they don't. It's not just 
Ruby files committed to source control now. They like compile it to this thing and stuff. So, and they do checks. But yeah, that could be an issue too. Uh, there, there can be reasons, legitimate reasons, and it's happened in the past where yeah. your artifacts are not accessible for a short period of time. Yeah, which can be and, annoying. And it's rare, but I have run into a case or two where the repository or the dependency that I was using just went away or, you know, the repository was deleted or renamed or moved. So, you know, that can happen as well. Yeah. Playing devil's advocate, like it feels kind of dirty to me to commit all that stuff. Cause it's in some other source control system somewhere. And I don't want it like taking up all the space in my repository. Uh, it just, it just seems like wrong to do. Just like it's kind of like duplicating code. Like, should you copy and paste a method that you're going to reuse somewhere else, or should you just make it a common method that you use both places? So I can see why it would feel bad. And if we had some other infrastructure in place, like that, where we could have an intermediate intermediate place that stored the libraries or something like that with Cocoa Pods, um, I would I may feel differently, but. Just with how fast CocoaPods is changing and kind of some of those other issues we talked about, I tend to just land on committing the pods directory out of pragmatism. But there's other reasons for why to ignore it, I'm sure. And we, back in the our Java days, we had a central repository for all of our dependencies that basically cached all the third-party libraries in one place for the enterprise for hundreds of developers. And you know, that gave us a level of production as well as a level of control over um, what libraries were being used. Mm -hmm. And they didn't. every developer didn't have to go out and download them for, from the third parties. We had one central place where they were available. And that kind of was the best of both worlds because we had a local cache as well as um, we could still pull them from the third parties as well. And it, it didn't fill up our our own repos uh, with the binaries. Yeah, and another point, and this is a, a point against my actual preference of not vendoring the pods, but <laughs> we had a release at work where the guy who was doing the build, he hadn't updated his pods lately and was like two minor versions behind on one of our libraries, which actually caused a significant production bug. Oh, that's no good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not that it wasn't turned around and fixed pretty right. quickly, but it was like, oh, well, if he'd have just done a pod update before doing the build, none of this would have happened. Yeah, to, to go against... My preference to another benefit of not committing the pods directory is you won't have any kind of conflicts uh, when you're doing source control stuff, merging with different branches and, and stuff like that. Because, I mean, we even ran into that a little bit this weekend, like someone forgot to commit a new library that they added or something like that. Uh, and if you just have the pod file and I guess the pod file .lock, uh, then... It's like, all right, those are just two very structured, easy to manage 
text files versus a whole bunch of different source code and, and stuff that can change all over the place. Yeah. In theory, you shouldn't have a situation where two people are merging something that's in a, a pod or, you know, modifying what's in a pod. I mean, I guess unless you were have you would have somebody that happened to pull in one version of the library and then two other people pulled in a separate second separate versions of those libraries all at the same time and then try to commit that I don't that's not really going to happen. Well, it may just be you forgot to commit something or yeah, there's all kinds yeah. of reasons I think something could happen but well, and there's a good chance that it's going to clutter up your commit too because if you all of a sudden commit 100 new files plus your changes to your mm -hmm. project files, it's going to get lost in there. Although it is kind of cool to do a diff and see what changed in the library if you're you're like, oh, it was broken before this version and now it works. I can look at the diff of the third-party library stuff too all, all together, but yeah. So I still don't think there's a cut-and-dry answer and maybe if we had some other infrastructure in place it would there would be like the one one true answer the the right way right copyright tm whatever way to do it but, yeah for me a lot of it comes down to is everybody has to stay in lockstep with their cocoa pods version otherwise somebody's going to get annoyed because they're gonna they're not gonna be able to build the project until they update their pods their cocoa pods after somebody else has updated and then committed that new pod file lock. Yeah, and there's also the CI server that has to, you know, hopefully you've got that scripted to keep that up to date. But yeah. I think it comes down to, you know, how much faith do you have in those dependencies being sticking around and always being there, and what what would happen if they did go away? or they weren't available for a short period of time. Well, it also is how how far back are you going to need to build? I mean, have you ever tried to go back and build, say, a two-year-old version of your app? Sometimes it's not easy, if you can even get the right version of Xcode to build. Well, yeah, and it, and it can break for multiple reasons. If you go back, it may be because CocoaPods is updated and that pod format no longer works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or it could be that your library is out of date and won't compile anymore on the latest tools. We actually had a fun issue randomly in, in uh, the apps that I work on where there was a bug in Xcode 6.3 that made our app uh, crash on launch, but it worked just fine in Xcode 6.2. The bug wasn't fixed in 6.4 either, so we were trying to go do like a hotfix release off of an old <laughs> version and... I uh, got rejected, and we were like, what? This code worked just fine last time we compiled and released it. <laughs> and I think we had, like, some, like, cached resources or whatever. Our derived data wasn't cleared out, so it built fine for us when we were testing locally. So that was fun. Yeah. yeah that's stuff to watch out for. <laughs> Building old versions of your project is it's not easy when you get significantly out of date. So good luck making that decision on your <laughs> on your projects. Um, yeah, fifteen minutes of uh, of our indecision, but you, you you've definitely made me think a little bit more about vendoring. I'm not sure where I'll fall on that later. Yeah.
I'll probably just say, forget it. I'm not vendoring. I just can't. <laughs> but, but I can see your point. Yeah, I think there's different situations where, where both make sense right now, too. Yeah. So, um, One other thing that I, I got to play around for the first time this weekend was really got to dig in with some UI stack view stuff. Uh, this is my first iOS 9 only app that I've done. Um, and maybe I had built up UI stack view too much in my head uh, from how easy it looked and all the demos and all that good stuff. But I was I was slightly underwhelmed with the flexibility of stack views. Well, yeah, I mean, I was doing some stuff on my own with them. Worked fine. It was convenient. Uh, I didn't have a problem with them when I was working with it, but I wasn't doing a whole lot of crazy stuff with it. Um, but yeah, the stuff that you guys built, when I tried to do some things like just throwing it into a scroll, having to put that whole view into a scroll view, it it went pretty crazy at that point. What did you find? One of the biggest issues I had was um, I didn't realize how much of my sizing uh, and layout control was very kind of inflexible if I decided to use UI stack views. Because essentially we had like, you know, whole screens where everything was in UI stack view. Um, maybe with a scroll view around it, but uh, like I wanted to do something like I had three buttons together and I wanted to make these just plain old UI buttons uh, square and then I was gonna make it use a corner radius to make them circular buttons. Um, but there is not a, a way that I found just, just because we, uh, ha I think we had like, I mean, uh, the stack views and the parent stack views were controlling both its height and width uh, with different parameters. Uh, and you just couldn't control an individual item. Right. This was a stack view and a stack view, right? Yep. The, the vertical one was the parent one, and then you had a horizontal one laying out a different a set of buttons. And you were trying to get the horizontal one to be a certain height, right? Yeah, well, I wanted them to be a square, but yeah, but but to do that, you needed to at least lock down your height so that you could figure out what your width would need to be. Yeah, and it seems like they're built off of the intrinsic content size a lot. If you're doing a certain uh, layout style, the mm -hmm. a fill style, but if you don't have an intrinsic content size, then your stack view is just going to go nuts, in a, especially in a scroll view. That's the the issue I had. It's like, okay, I'm going to dump this into a scroll view, and then everything. Then it's like, oh, my stack view is not there. It wants to be zero pixels tall. It's like, what? <laughs> or something's in there because they didn't have an actual. Like I had some views that were just separator views, and I wanted them to show up, and they don't really have an intrinsic content size at all and so they would just never show up they would just be zero height and so it was driving me crazy for a while i actually en ended up embedding those separators into their own view 
and then pinning that thing with some height constraints inside of it and so that that container view would have its own intrinsic content height which is kind of backwards to what you would think you should be able to do with stack views yeah and i think the the crux of it was i was thinking of a stack view as similar to just like html like default layout for divs like block elements uh or even kind of like an android flow layout and it, that's just not completely what it is it's kind of similar but not exactly so maybe it was my bad for thinking it was more awesome than it was but i could still see places where i'd use a ui stack view but just more limited in nature than what i would have thought of before yeah you can get some pretty good layouts pretty easily but yeah, if you need to have a lot of variable variable height or variable width things, it's going to get a little crazy. And yeah, and throwing them into a scroll view, scroll views are just rough in general. I, I never have fun with scroll views. Yeah, they can be tricky. Maybe you need Eliza Block to come help you out. <laughs> She's good with the scroll views. Even, so, some, even some of her examples I've found hard to follow along with. Yeah. It's a complicated thing. Surprisingly so, yeah. Well, moving on from stack views, uh, have you guys gotten Volkswagen Gen Xcode integrated in all of your projects? <laughs> Need to put that in at work. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what this is, Alex? Yeah, I know what it is, but <laughs> why don't you go ahead and explain it? Uh, I guess someone was really bored, and, and just for fun, they uh, created a, I don't know if it's an Xcode plugin or or just a library you use when you're unit tests, but it basically detects when you're running unit tests in a CI environment and makes them all pass, as you would expect from something called Volkswagen Xcode. <laughs> They have a diesel version, and a... <laughs> <laughs> I know they don't have an electric version. Yeah, I'm waiting for Tesla Gen X code. I wonder what it'll do. Run your test really fast. Yeah, that sounds good because I actually have seen there's been some major uh, unit test regressions in terms of like how how long it takes to run a unit test uh, with iOS nine and Xcode seven. <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw that, but. No, but you know that might be something you're doing with the code coverage generating, or it wasn't me. It was I saw some other person complaining. Maybe it was like in the Swift Lang Slack channel or something huh. uh, about the how long it would take to run unit tests. They said they filed some radars, but nothing yet. <laughs> <laughs> I I personally haven't seen a noticeable difference, but okay. Uh, I've got a you know one project that I've got over 400 and maybe 50 tests somewhere around there and they seem to be really fast so it's a good size um, good number of tests so i looked at that volkswagen github page and it's either a CocoaPod or a carthage thing so you can install it and i guess that's all you have to do 
didn't look like you had to do much. Just Maybe it just does some Objective-C runtime into the XC test framework. <laughs> oh, you do have to make your uh, test in inherit from... No, actually you don't. I was looking at that. I was thinking you had to inherit from their own test base, but... I think the really hilarious part about this is Sam is really thinking about using this at work. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just wondering how it's working. I guess it's doing I mean, some... You just uh, have to get all the assert statements to evaluate the true, right? Yeah, while you're in so, a CI, right? Because it just runs while you're yeah. in a CI. Well, you also got to make sure that you don't have any crashes too, which seems hard. <laughs> <laughs> you just have that big catch-all... Like, Try catch. Yeah, just a, a method swizzle for for an XE test run method <laughs> and do mm -hmm. a try catch for all of it. All right, I think we're getting somewhere. We're going to have to release <laughs> our own Volkswagen Xcode plugin. <laughs> oh. Now, if, if you could have some kind of uh, VW antidote code that would go and fix everybody else's broken unit tests, that would be worth something. It looks like it was inspired by a project for PHP called PHP Unit VW. Yeah, there's a JavaScript one too that I saw. I don't even. Ago. I don't even know why they need something like that for PHP. I mean, isn't it made <laughs> by Volkswagen? Yeah. Don't hate on the PHP guys, Sam. Come on. <laughs> why it's too easy or what? It's probably higher than Objective C is in that. TOB index for languages now. We've fallen out of the top 10. And now I'm curious if, if PHP is higher. That would be a sad it day. It is. PHP oh. is... It's always up there, is though. It's number six. Dang. Hmm. PHP depends <laughs> on everything. And you know the top web content management solutions out there are all written in PHP. So it shouldn't be too surprising. All right, guys, we might have to yeah. stop this podcast so I can change jobs and do some PHP. <laughs> Java's number one, C, which is it's... actually kind of surprising to me. But... What's that? Java is number one. You can probably thank Android for that. Uh, I don't know. I think there's still... Android plus all the other legacy ton stuff. of Enterprise. You know, it's the, the cobol of yeah. our generation. Definitely is nowadays. 20 yeah. years old. There's still plenty of jobs out there for Java developers. Not just Android. There are worse languages to program in, like PHP, right? Yeah. I'm actually surprised that Python is as high as it is. I think that's more of a geography thing for us. I think locally Python's not that big, but other parts of the country and, and world python's a lot bigger we just have we have a really strong ruby community here so we run into ruby a lot more than we do python uh, it looks like swift is still below objective c as well it is but it's climbing right yeah they're both going opposite directions so maybe we'll have it looks like this time last year objective c was number three so that is a pretty quick fall it's down to number 14 now in one year. So maybe <laughs> maybe Swift will be up there at number three soon. But it's, it's weird that Swift didn't jump up you know, 11 places. Swift is up by four. 
and Objective C is down by 11, would those number? I mean, there's no way, I guess, to say like, oh, there's this. The pie was this big last year, and now it's this big this year. So you can't make a direct correlation, I guess, from year to year as far as growth and popularity. Yeah, I think the iOS bubble is going to pop, guys. You better get your CVs ready. I'm, I'm looking at Go these days. <laughs> Which I don't think that's on here. No, it's not even on the top 20. I'm getting in early. Yeah, have fun with that one, yeah. Sam. <laughs> Bleeding edge. It's not a bad little language for server-side stuff. Just wait until Swift is available. Open source. That's yeah. That's gonna make it blow up. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to be able to do some Swift on and on Android. That's not really materialized to my liking yet. Yeah. So one other thing I thought was cool that I saw this week. Uh, is Tweetbot, they have their new version out, and they just implemented a uh, swipe from the left gesture on their Safari View controller, so you can dismiss it, uh, which as a 6+, 6S Plus user, it's very useful because I don't have to get that button in the top right um, to close a Safari View controller. You know, um, it's a two-handed if- phone, right? You can't really use it properly with just one hand yeah i can now now that <laughs> tweetbot supports this i'm i'm back to one-handed use <laughs> they should have added just like a shake to close kind of thing <laughs> now that sounds really dumb no one would ever do that <laughs> <laughs> but uh i, I mean it, it does seem kind of weird like as far as the hig goes but i think that's kind of the problem of Apple making bigger phones and uh, having the the HIG kind of say, you want like done type buttons up in the top right. It's a crappy situation to to be in, I think, just kind of from a UI standpoint. We don't have a hardware back button like Android does. And I don't want to deal with all the consequences of having one, but (laughs) it's also kind of bad UI if you have to tap all the way up there, even with our double tap on the home button shortcut i did see a screen protector that will mimic a hardware back button so if you really want a hardware back button (laughs) how does it do that so the it's it's got some uh like electrodes or something that run along the side of the the screen protector so it like taps in the upper left if you tap on this fake button Yes. Hmm. So I guess it extends down towards your the touch ID sensor, and then you can tap on those little areas, and it'll do the left or right. It seemed pretty wacky to me. Yeah, that seems both really wacky and horrible, but also ingenious at the same time. <laughs> hmm. Now you're thinking about it, huh? Yeah, you don't know how useful that would be on a 6S Plus, Sam. No, I have a phone that is appropriately sized for my hand. Barely, but it is. But the screen is so small. (laughs) It's meant to be that size. 
Yeah. Fits in my pocket just fine. It's still bigger than a 5S. <laughs> this is true. I tried out before the new phones came out. I swapped with, with someone and had a 6 for a couple days, and it was horrible. I couldn't I couldn't go back. <laughs> you were you were ruined, huh? Yep, I was I was ruined. It's like retina displays. Like once you have one, you can't go back to a non-retina display. It just looks horrible. Yeah, I suppose. So, uh, Alex, you have a little follow-up to 360 iDev. Is that right? Yeah, 360 iDev had their mini-conference recently in Greenville, South Carolina. And they just posted most of the videos up on uh, Vimeo, I believe. Um, We can put a link in the show notes, but if you weren't able to make it to that conference, um, the session videos are now now available. Check them out. Yeah, he puts all of the session videos up that he can on Vimeo. Yeah, occasionally a recording doesn't work out or, um, you know, for one yeah. reason or another. But, uh, yeah, as, as much as he can, he puts out there and shares. Mm-hmm. So did you see any that you were interested in? and checking out and he just posted them today i haven't had a chance to comb through them and and find any any uh gems yet but i'm sure that there's always a few that i'm interested in yeah it's a high quality it's a high quality conference in general at least the the regular 360 idev is so yeah i'm interested in checking some of those out I'm always looking for something to play while I'm making dinner or folding laundry or whatever. And there's a, another conference coming up, actually several, but um, later this month, the Swift Summit Conference in San Francisco. I wish I had known about it earlier or I would have made an effort to attend. Uh, but last year they posted session videos and there were some really good presentations on Swift. So. I expect they'll post the session videos again this year, so I'm looking forward to that. And then, um, Hopefully they'll have a little bit more longevity than you know, last year's <laughs> videos. <laughs> yeah. Considering we went from 1-2 two to 2-1 two, almost within a year. Yeah, I think by the time the videos were posted, they weren't too far in front of... Um, you know, we, we were getting updates to Swift all throughout the year so yeah there were probably a few videos that were outdated by the time they were posted and now that we've got swift 2 um I, th- I think we'll see a little bit of a slowdown in some of those changes especially once swift is actually open sourced yeah the language should be stabilizing yeah i feel sorry yeah. for all the people who wrote books and put out uh training videos on Swift, only to now have to go back and redo them all. Well, it just means they get to charge for updates. Maybe. <laughs> Buy version two of my book. It's even better and more relevant. Yeah. And then yeah. uh, Alex and I are heading out later this week to attend the Release Notes Conference, which is focused more on kind of the indie developers and the business aspects of 
the mobile app development space. Uh, definitely a, a different collection of speakers talking more around the, the business side of things and, and less technical and um, less code oriented talks. Yeah, I think it'll be a, yeah, I think it'll be interesting. Definitely a different experience in a lot of the conferences I've been to in the past. Yeah, we had one of the conference organizers, Charles Perry, on the show way back, right? When, what was that, back in April, March? Sounds about right. Somewhere in there. Uh, yeah, there it is, April 30th. So if anybody wants to go back and at least listen to what the sh conference is going to be like, then they can go ahead and pick up that episode but it is too late to buy a ticket i believe yeah sales have closed for the tickets yeah maybe if you beg charles real hard i don't know well by the time this podcast comes out i've got a feeling the conference will have already started so we'll, we'll let you guys know how it was uh when we get back for next year yeah and i don't know if charles and joe plan to post the session videos for people to see uh, who couldn't attend, but you know, being the first year, it, you know, we don't have any history to base that off of. But and hopefully, they'll be able to share the content uh, for folks who can't make it. Well, I think that's about all the time we have this week. Uh, so why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on Twitter? You can find me at AJ Robinson. I'm Sam Quarter. And I'm at Alex Argo. And the podcast is at Shared Inst on Twitter. The email address is sharedinstancepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Any feedback you got, we'll uh, cover it in a future episode in a follow-up. And as always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are very appreciated. Uh, we don't give money away for those. We can't do that, but we do appreciate it. And we didn't have an App of the Week submission again. You guys are kind of quiet out there on your on your apps. I hope you're you're all toiling away on maybe your Apple TV apps or something. But we would love to share those with the public once you are ready. Thanks, guys. <laughs>